The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Um, in these verses, verses 16 through 25, the main idea really boils down to this. We are going to live out our Christ-bought freedom, and we're going to conquer the desires of the flesh by the very power of the Holy Spirit that God supplies. Um, as I just said, I'm, I'm just sort of really feeling keenly this morning uh, the, the preacher's inability <laughs> this morning. And what I mean by that is, is this. There's times where you just sort of maybe wish as a preacher that you did have sort of the ability to just sort of like program certain words or like reach out and press certain buttons to make people sort of quote, get it. Because you understand just how truly important a certain biblical text is. But in God's good design, he has not left that up to me. Um, in God's good design, it totally rests on him. It rests on the power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see Jesus in a text. It rests on the power of the Holy Spirit to open our minds to understand the Scriptures. It truly rests on the power of the Holy Spirit to make us, quote, get it. And I'm convinced that the reason why so many of us may be here this morning or why so many of us, broadly speaking, who claim the name of Christ to walk in weakness or walk continually tripping and stumbling and bumbling over sin is because the realities are of what are in these verses here, these latter verses in Galatians chapter 5, for some reason, the truthfulness of those truths just have not come home to roost. To where we have truly learned that the Christian life, growth in Christ, comes by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And what does it look like to be led by the Spirit, an action that happens to us so that we then walk in the Spirit in a manner that's pleasing to the Savior who bought us our freedom from sin... So that the flesh is crucified, we murder that thing, and we leave it there dead on the cross. So that Christ continues to increase and the flesh continues to decrease. All of us that are here this morning, I think, long for that reality in our lives, yeah? Where we see the ugly head of flesh... The old self, that cadaver trying to wiggle itself back to life. And unfortunately for most of us, instead of stabbing that cadaver and putting it to death, what we try to do is we try to coddle it back to life. But Paul's going to call us this morning to crucify our passions, crucify the desires of the flesh. And he's going to show us how this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? So let's pray for one another. And my encouragement is going to be that as we pray for one another this morning, it's just the encouragement that Pastor Tom gives all the time during the pastoral prayer is, uh, 
love your family right now. One of the ways that you can serve one another through love is by going to bat in prayer for those that are sitting around you this morning. To not only say, Spirit, help me to grasp the verses this morning, but maybe you just swivel your head to the left and the right and you go, please help this brother, please help this sister, please help this person grasp the realities of what are here this morning so that we could leave here saying, man, God has moved, God has come, and God has met with us through the preaching of his word, okay? Let's do that right now together as a family, all right? Father, we do confess the truthfulness of everything I just spoke here. We need you. The flesh, if we were to give it a voice, says to the self, self, you deserve to live for yourself. You deserve to live to gratify yourself, please yourself, indulge yourself. And Father, if I rightly understand anything that remotely looks like the schemes of the enemy, I can just see him right now almost reaching out his hand, the enemy, and turning up the volume of the self so that he can try to out-drown the leading, speaking voice of the Spirit through the text this morning as he woos our hearts to say, put that flesh to death. Don't you dare coddle that cadaver. Don't you dare try to resuscitate that flesh. Let's run after him who bought your freedom with his body and his blood. God, help us this morning to hear you speak clearly so that we can know the true conquering power of the Spirit over the flesh, that sin nature that remains in us. Help us for your name's sake, Lord Jesus, for your glory. Amen. Travel back in time. Marty McFly, hop in your DeLorean, all right? Travel back in time to a week. We are looking at chapter 5, verse 13, and this is what the verse said. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. As you read your Bible, if there was ever a category for words that are easy to say, but actions difficult to do, it would be chapter 5, verse 13 in the book of Galatians. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Rolls off the mouth quite easy, but the reality of those actions taking root in our lives are just straight up difficult to do. It was last Sunday at home um, in a situation that called my wife to serve others through love. I, I talked to her about this, so like I'm not punking out my wife right now. Some of you guys are like, I don't know if I like where this is going here. I'm not, I'm not punking out. She, she's the hero in this story here, okay? Um, yeah, to, to my dismay, oftentimes pastors will use their family as sort of like a what not to do, which I think is an awful thing to do. That's why I hardly ever point to my family, but Tara said something that's phenomenal last week, and I think you guys will be served by this. But last week, 
after the sermon, we were standing there next to the sink, and she said something um, that just struck me deeply for just how shockingly true it, it was um, in light of this whole serving others through love kind of thing. She said something to the effect of, it's hard to serve others through love when all that other person does is just think about themselves. Yeah? Like when that person is self-serving and then King Jesus says, here's my command to you, serve that one who loves to serve self. Oftentimes we go, I don't know that they are worthy of my sacrificial loving service because all they are about is themselves. When she said this, I thought to myself, man, like this is just profound simply for just how accurate it is. Like when those around us are self-absorbed with self-serving, it genuinely makes serving them through love very difficult. But here's the thing. As much as we might wish it weren't so, the difficulty factor in this situation or any other situation, it does not negate God's command for us to exercise our Christ-bought freedom to serve others from, through love. You see, the Lord Jesus has made it very plain that those who know the love of God in Christ are responsible to do what he calls us to do. But for each one of us here this morning, we understand the tension this creates because we also know that in ourselves, we do not have the will to always do what Jesus tells us to do. In thinking about this tension this past week, it made me think to this quote I heard one time from St. Augustine, famous little prayer of his that goes something like this. He says, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. In other words, Augustine in this little prayer is saying this, King Jesus, you have every right to tell me what to do. You're the creator. You're the king. You're the boss. You're the master. You have, as the creator, as the king, every right to say, son, daughter, the one whom I've saved, this is what it looks like to live in submission to my lordship. I'm commanding you. I'm telling you what to do. And I think Augustine's going, this is good. This is right. I'm glad King Jesus lays out what it looks like to walk in obedience to him. But then that back half of that little prayer where he says, God, I need you to give what you command what Augustine and so many of us are realizing in that moment is the moment King Jesus says, this is what it looks like to obey me, here is this command, our heart immediately feels that tension where we go, man, like I know myself well enough to know that there's just times in my life the command is plain and simple, but the will, the desire to walk in obedience to that command just isn't there. My hope in this situation, Augustine says, is that, listen, Jesus, you have every right to tell me what to do. But my hope is that you will also equip me with the necessary power to even obey that which you command me to do. So when it comes to taking this truth and just laying it right on top of Galatians chapter 5, when it comes to not using our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, 
when it comes to obeying the command of Jesus to serve others through love, the question that should be stirring in all of our hearts even either now or in the past is this question here. How in the world is this, is this even possible? Like I know myself enough to know that when King Jesus commands me, and that's a command to serve one another through love, it hits my ears. I look at that and go, that is good. That is right. It is perfect. It is honoring to Jesus. He has every right to tell me to do that. But then I turn around and look outward and begin to go, Ooh, like there's just times when I straight up just don't want to do what he commands me to do. So how is this even possible? How can I walk in a way that is pleasing to God, obeying his commands. Another way to word that same question is to ask this. What power has Jesus given to us so that we can obey his commands? Has he given any power? Is King Jesus a malevolent dictator who just says, I, I, demand, I command you to do this, and you got to know I have no clue how you're going to walk in obedience to this. I sure hope you figure it out, because if you don't figure it out, and you stumble, and you trip, and you fumble, and you don't obey it, I'm coming after you. And that's malevolence. That's not goodness. But is it possible that King Jesus comes in benevolence, in goodness, and says, I am the king. I died on the cross to save you. I have called you my own. My blood, my sacrifice has been applied to your account. My righteousness has been applied to your account. Your faith in me means you are now right with God. And the way that grace received, Christ bought freedom, looks like in your life, is to walk in obedience to the commands. And guess what? I'm going to give you the very thing you need to be able to walk in obedience to that command. See, that's good news. That's good news. What power has Jesus given to us so that we can obey his commands? To which Paul says, bro, all you got to do is tap into Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and read to the end of the chapter. I'm telling you right now. So sit up, scoot to the edge of your seat, tune your ears to receive these words because this is really the culminating point of Paul's letter in the book of Galatians. What does it look like to walk in true Christian freedom in such a way where we are conquering the flesh and walking in a way where the fruit of the Spirit is bearing fruit all over the place in our lives. Paul says the answer is this. Jesus has given you the power of the Holy Spirit. This, says Paul, is how these things are possible. This is how we are able to serve others through love. This is how we're able to fight sin in any general sense. This isn't a truth just for how we serve one another through love. This is true for just how we fight the fight of faith in battling the temptations of the flesh to run after sin and not run after Christ. What's the answer? The answer is this. You saints live out your Christ-bought freedom and you conquer the desires of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul just simply turns and gives us a section of Scripture that is quite simply just full of the Holy Spirit. You start looking through the Spirit, His name, it's just pinging everywhere. Because he's wanting us to zero in on the Spirit. And so what he's going to do first, starting off in verse 16, is call us to walk by the Spirit. How do we begin to process this Christ-bought freedom, living it out, conquering the desires of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit? You start by walking by the Spirit. Verse 16. 
Look what he says there. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here's the conflict that every one of us who are born again understand intimately. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. See, Paul is calling the Galatians to learn how to walk by the Spirit because he knows that spiritual growth comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in essence, is our teacher. And as the teacher, his desire is to instruct us in the ways of Christ and to conform us to the image of Christ. But notice that in stark opposition to the desires of the Spirit is something which Paul calls the desires of the flesh. Now last week we defined that little word, the flesh. And we said this, the flesh, this idea, this word, the, the, the definition that is packed into this little phrase, the flesh, Paul says it's a unique kind of word, it refers to our fallen human nature which is twisted with self-centeredness. And because it's twisted with self-centeredness, it's prone to sin because in our self-centeredness, we quite often say, no thank you, God, to your good ways. I'm going to say yes to my ways. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That is the essence of the flesh. A good way to remember that the essence of the flesh is selfishness is to write out the word flesh, F-L-E-S-H, Drop the H, go backwards in reverse. How do you spell flesh backwards minus the H? S-E-L-F. The flesh is all about the self. The self says, let's run after the flesh. In a nutshell, flesh, this idea, it's pro-self. And if there's one thing Paul is saying here in verse 16, it's this. The flesh exists to gratify the desires of itself. You see, when Paul describes this flesh versus spirit conflict in these verses, he's basically helping us by building a category for us believers. He's, he's saying this. If we are going to walk by the Spirit... And if we're going to not gratify the desires of the flesh, we must realize that this flesh against spirit and spirit against flesh accurately describes the conflict that rages within me as one who's been declared right with God and my faith in Christ. This is not a battle taking place out there somewhere. This is a battle that's raging within me. Listen, for those justified by faith in Christ... Truly, the power of sin no longer reigns in your life. In Christ, Romans chapter 6, verse 14 says, Sin will have no dominion over you since you are under grace. Verse 18, in Christ, you have been set free from sin. Romans 6, verse 18 Yet, Paul is saying here, here's the category building part, even though the power of sin no longer reigns, the temptation to sin still remains. It's the difference between reign and remain. 
It used to be outside of Christ, before you were justified, sin did reign in your life. You were subject to its power. It was a master, cruel and harsh over you, bidding you to come and do whatever it wanted you to do in flat-out, complete opposition to Christ. Jesus saved you. He cancels the power of sin. He sets you free. Sin no longer reigns, but the reality is for the believer. This is truth for the believer. Sin, temptation to sin, the flesh, all synonymous language, that temptation still remains. Hello? Yeah, believers here this morning. Temptation to sin still remains. In other words, even as a sinner made right with God by his grace, the desires of the flesh, we have to say, are not totally absent from our lives, but they threaten us constantly, whispering and wooing us to come and run after the old self. This is a battle of what the Bible calls sanctification. Sanctification is the battle to grow and mature and work out our Christ-bought freedom in every area of our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. I read a great illustration of this um, just this past week, maybe two weeks ago, in a book that I'm reading, which is in essence an autobiography of how this um, young lady came to faith in Christ. The author is Jackie Hill Perry, And she just wrote a book called Gay Girl, Good God, subtitle, The Story of Who I Was and Who God Has Always Been. And in the title, you can figure it out, um, gave her life full tilt to homosexual relationships and a whole other slew of sins. And in this little autobiography of how God saved her, in grace and in mercy, drew her to himself, she begins to tease out how she's starting to learn the realities of how I used to be under the power of sin. When Jesus saved me by his grace, he broke the power of sin. But to her surprise, the temptation to sin, specifically for her in the area of homosexuality, it's still, it still remains. There was like a very real temptation there. I want to quote her at length here because she writes this. When salvation has taken place in the life of someone under the sovereign hand of God, they are set free from the penalty of sin and its power. In a body without the Spirit... Sin is an unshakable king under whose dominion no man can flee. The entire body, with its members, with its affections and mind, all of them willfully submit themselves to sin's rule. But when the Spirit of God takes back the body that he created for himself, he sets it free from the pathetic master that once held it captive and releases it into the marvelous light of its Savior. But to my surprise, being a Christian delivered me from the power of sin, but in no way did it remove the possibility of temptation. She continues, Many presume that to be cleansed by Jesus 
is to be immune to the enticement of sin. This we know not to be true because of Jesus. He, being completely perfect, and yet he still experienced temptation for, Hebrews 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It should be expected then. This is the money shot right here. This is so good. I'm like, man, I'm so thankful for her, her winsome ability to be able to articulate doctrine clearly. She says this, It should be expected then that any who would follow Jesus as Lord would still find themselves urged to do what ought not be done, that they would at times sense in their bodies the temptation to obey it and not God. Hello, the battle of the Christian life. And that's just what Paul's trying to lay out for us right now. He's trying to say, friend, if you're feeling the tension of this battle, welcome to the Christian life. Now, the question becomes, what does Christian growth look like? It's not just enough to lay out the players on the battlefield, but how do we enter into the fray and begin to walk in such a way where the desires of the flesh are conquered and the fruit of the Spirit begin to bear and work themselves out? Paul says it's going to come not only as we walk by the Spirit, right? It's, it's definitely as we walk by the Spirit. This is how we're going to begin to, verse 17, do the things we want to do. But he's going to show us with the next phrase that it's a mistake to suppose that we will conquer the flesh merely in our own strength. English can be sort of a harsh language in this sense. The idea behind walk by the Spirit is an active verb. It's something we are to do. We are to walk by the Spirit. But the idea in the original language behind the phrase be led by the Spirit is, is, is something that happens to us. We need the Spirit to lead us so that we can actually go forth and walk by the Spirit. If you're just hearing me say this, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, figure it out, white-knuckle it, bite the bullet, get out there and start walking by the Spirit, that is a Christless, self-centered, guys, get your act together and go at it. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's like, it's that beautiful meshing together where the command is, go obey, walk by the Spirit, but know that the very thing that Christ commands, he comes right along and says, oh, by the way, I'm going to fill you with the Spirit so that you can be led by the Spirit to go do the very thing that I'm commanding you to do. It's a beautiful, beautiful, I don't know, system. I have a lot, no, another better, better word, process for the way Christ empowers us to grow. So you go into verse 18, you get the second point. We need to be led by the Spirit. So we've got to walk by the Spirit. We need to be led by the Spirit. It's just right there. Look at your copy of Scripture. If you are led by the Spirit, he begins to say, you are not under the law. And God's plan for your growth, for my growth as recipients of his grace, we are to do the walking, but the Spirit does the leading. The imagery is this, that of a shepherd leading sheep. Or maybe the wind blowing and filling the sails of a ship. 
This is how we keep in step with the Spirit, verse 25. This is how we live by the Spirit. It's as the Spirit blows and fills the sails. It's as we, the sheep, are led by the shepherd. It's as we recognize that in Christ we're no longer under the law, but under the influence of the Spirit who leads us to walk along the flesh-conquering path he lays down straight to Jesus. This is the language of um, Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul there starts talking about um, what it looks like to walk a spirit-filled life. And he says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So do you what he's saying, seeing what he's saying there? We are often prone to go and submit ourselves under the influence of things that will lead us away from the Spirit, but you're meant to walk out your Christian life under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so the question becomes, well, then how can I know if the Spirit is leading me to walk in his flesh-conquering ways? And Paul says it's not difficult to tell. A surefire way to know that you're not being led by the Spirit and the surefire way to know that you are gratifying the desires of the flesh is if the works of the flesh are evident in your life. Insert that list. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and I love this. He's like, and things like these. Just in case you think this is an exhaustive list, he's like, there's a lot more that can go on out there, but like, I don't want my whole letter to be just a big list. <laughs> so what I'm doing is I'm, I'm showing you it's, it's things, things like these. right? So Paul's not giving us an exhaustive list, but what he is saying is this. If you pan back and you look at the panorama of your life and the habitual, consistent, continual pattern of your life looks like this list, then he says, you've got problems. Because you can confess all day long that I'm walking by the Spirit, I'm being led by the Spirit, I know what it means to have Christ-bought freedom, but in the areas of sex, religion, relationships, and abuse, if your life is reflecting these things, then he says we've got a warning that we need to talk about. Right? This, this is what Paul is talking about here. Do you see the list? I mean, we're not gonna, I'm not going to bore you to tears by trying to unpack every single word here, but I think you just need to see at least this that this list breaks down into at least four categories, and you heard me just say them here. First, you have the works of the flesh in the area of sexuality. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Sexual immorality is the Greek word there is porneia. It's where we get pornography from. Sex between unmarried people is the idea that's going on there. Porneia was not just a word narrow like we use it. It was a word to describe just when sex is taking place beyond the boundaries of marriage. Impurity is going after that idea of unnatural sexual practices. Sensuality is just an uncontrolled sexuality where you are not in control of it, fruit of the spirit, self-control. It is in control of you. What drives you in the morning? What drives what you look on your phone? What drives what you look on the computer? What drives the way you look at other people and the way you might think about them and fantasize about all these things? He says that's sensuality. That is uncontrolled sexuality. These are works of the flesh. Then he goes down into two words that describe the works of the flesh in the area of religion. Idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is just simply, in a nutshell, providing an inadequate substitute for God. 
God is God. And you shall have no other gods before me. But we love to make little lowercase g gods all the time. In other parts of the world, it might actually look like real deal idols. In America, we pride ourselves, "Ah, we ain't worshiping no idols. But really, your work isn't the God you serve. Your craving for power isn't the God you serve. Your money isn't the God you serve. Sex isn't the God you serve. Sorcery, what's the essence of sorcery? It's just basically faking the work of the Holy Spirit. What's sorcery? Tarot cards, all these sorts of things. You're trying to manipulate the spiritual realm with stuff. The only one who can manipulate the spiritual realm truly with authority is God the Spirit. So sorcery is faking the work of the Spirit. Then he moves into eight words, and I think it sort of identifies this. The area of life that the flesh so often works itself out in is in our relationships. Because then he moves into eight straight words that are just straight up about how it can go very south very quickly if you're operating in the flesh in your relationships. So he says, here are some destructive attitudes that are evidence of the flesh. Enmity, that's the idea of hostility, hatred. you got this adversarial attitude. Rivalries, you're driven by selfish ambition. Everything is a competition to where it's you against me, me against you, and I'm going to take you down. Envy, you're just simply driven by a desire for what other people have. Work of the flesh, jealousy, the zeal that comes from that hungry heart for what someone else possesses. I don't like the fact that you have that thing, man. And what wakes me up in the morning is to make sure that I can make sure you don't have it anymore or I get what you have, jealousy. Then the results that come from these attitudes, if you are driven by hostility, if you're driven by selfish ambition, if you are consumed with envy and jealousy, it should make complete sense to you than that your life is filled with strife. You're always seeking to pick fights. It should make sense to you that your life is filled with anger. I made reference to this last week. If I am operating in the sense that it's me against you, I want what you have. I don't like that you have what I don't have. And so now what I'm going to do is get angry whenever I encounter you, relate to you, cross paths with you. If I think I'm better than you, but you don't operate in return and reciprocate this thought that I am better than you, then outbursts, fits of rage begin to come out of us if people don't begin to operate in regard to this whacked out, flesh-driven worldview that we have. Dissensions, divisions, parties that war between one another, factions that divide, And to round it all off, Paul dives into those last two words that are just summed up with that that idea of abuse. The flesh leads to abuse, especially abuse of pleasure-creating substances and behavior. Drunkenness, which leads to abusive behavior. Orgies, in English language, we often denote or connotate this word here, rather, uh, to be sexual in nature, but it's actually a word here that's just carousing. Old school word, more modern word, might just be wild parties. It's going and just getting blitzed on the weekend bender because, hey, it's the thing to do. That's flesh driven. This is, Paul says, the ugliness of the flesh. And Paul has a stark warning for those who do such things, verse 21. It's this they will not inherit. The kingdom of God. 
are not light things. They're heavy things. In other words, and this, this here is, here, I'm, I'm trying to pastor you, because right now some of you guys have sensitive souls, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> like, I sort of fell prey to some of these here just recently. And you're like, am I, verse 21, like, am I not inheriting the kingdom of God? In the verbal tense and the way that Paul writes this out here in verse 21, he's, he's driving at this idea. It's those who habitually seek these things out. It's those who continually strive to gratify the desires of the flesh. It's those who continually indulge the sinful nature, and here's the key, without battling against the sinful nature. Paul says if you wake up in the morning and you go to bed at night, and wake up in the morning and go to bed at night, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, and the general ebb and flow of your life is a habitual, continual pursuit of life given over to these sorts of things, and the key is you don't give a flying rip about trying to battle against them. He says, don't be telling me anything about being walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, because the works of the flesh, evident in your life, tell me this. Your unwillingness to battle the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit tells me you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God because you're not in the kingdom of God Because the works of the flesh are the fruit, in essence, proving that grace has not transformed your life. So if you're here this morning, happily under the rule of the flesh, giving yourself over to sex in the way that it's described here, abusing religion in the way it's described here, abusing others in your relationships as it's described here, abusing substances for your self-indulgent pleasure in this way, Paul says this, you should stand in fear because you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. But ultimately what I want you to see is this, is that Paul is not saying and giving that warning out of a vindictive, hate-filled, I'm going to get you kind of, kind of mentality. Brothers and sisters, I hope you can see this, that the warnings of the Spirit in the Scriptures are God's pursuing grace, wooing you, drawing you to see, listen, friends, this path is wide and it leads to destruction. Jesus is better Warnings like this are invitations to come and taste and see and delight in the Christ who died so that you might live. So to be led by the Spirit is to change and be changed. It's to be conformed into the image of Christ bringing glory to God, which is the very desire of the Spirit himself. And what the leading of the Spirit ultimately yields is a people who bear the fruit of the Spirit. That's what those last verses are all about. We see this starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Notice that it's a singular fruit. And it's a multifaceted fruit. Notice it's not. It's the works of the flesh, the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. I heard someone make a good illustration here. It's like that little orange 
fruit, one. You peel off the skin, what do you have? All these little wedges, multifaceted pieces of a singular piece of fruit, and that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's these multifaceted wedges that are to work out and bear, bear fruit in the life of those who have been saved by grace. One commentator, I love how he identifies the contours of the Spirit's fruit by showing us that this list here in verse 22 and 23, it portrays a Christian's attitude to God, a Christian's attitude to others, and a Christian's attitude to themselves. So when we live by the Spirit's leading, walk out our Christ-bought freedom by his power, and when we keep in step with his flesh-conquering ways, the primary direction of love, joy, and peace, it's going to be towards the God who first loved you. Patience, kindness, goodness, it will then begin to flow out of that love towards those around you. When you are bowled over by the love of the Father for you in Christ, it will begin, the Spirit will begin to temper you in such a way to where you will be patient towards those like Christ was patient towards you. Do you ever imagine this? If God handled you the way you were impatient and handle others, how quick you would have been scorched a long time ago. You will begin to be kind towards others in him who showed us kindness. Goodness will flow out of you in the way that you have received the infinite goodness of the Christ and his cross and his death for you. And then what happens is as you are continuing to grow, you will begin to notice, hey, like faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, in my life, they're, they're increasing. These things are rightly describing who I am in Christ. This, says Paul, is the natural produce that appears in the lives of spirit-led Christians. It does not happen by keeping the law, for against such things there is no law. Rather, we conquer the desires of the flesh by the power of the spirit. So what is Paul saying there with that little, little tack-on phrase there? There is, against such things, there is no law. He's saying you can't legislate the fruit of the Spirit. That's why no set of rules are going to make you grow more like Jesus. He's like, no, the Spirit is what makes you grow more like Jesus. And so the question becomes, that's great. I'm supposed to walk by the Spirit. I'm supposed to be led by the Spirit. If this is true in my life, I'm going to bear the fruit of the Spirit. But the question still comes, how does the fruit of the Spirit grow in my life? So how, how does this happen? How does it happen? How do I walk by the Spirit's leading? How do I not gratify the desires of the flesh? How do I do this? Verse 24. Verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, says Paul, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The flesh is conquered, and the Spirit is, the fruit of the Spirit is produced as we remember to whom we belong and to what we've been called. 
As sinners justified by grace, Paul says, you got to remember this, we belong to Christ Jesus by grace. All that is his is ours. Our approval and welcome from the Father rests on him. Therefore, we are free to acknowledge where we have given up ground to the flesh in our lives, and we are free to confess where we have not sought to keep in step with the Spirit. And because we belong to Christ by grace, we can now pursue the crucifixion of our flesh with its passions and desires. What you got to know is this, that the idea there in verse 24 of have crucified the flesh, it's different from what Paul is talking about back over there in Galatians 2.20, where I've been crucified with Christ. There he's just straight up saying, in that moment when you came to Christ, it's as though you've been crucified with him. Here, it's we who are doing the crucifying. Because we have been crucified with Christ. So what he's saying is, look backward to that time when you were crucified with Christ. Do you remember that? Yes, Paul, I remember that. Thank you, God, for crucifying me with Christ, and now my life is hidden in him. And so Paul says, hey, remember that back then? You start to do that now by the power of the Spirit in you to those things that want to draw you away from the one with whom you were crucified. By the power of the Spirit, it's a deliberate action where we put to death the deeds of the body and actually leave it there to die. So often the reason why the works of the flesh keep lingering in our lives is because we keep nursing the flesh back to health. Instead of a ruthless and pitiless attitude towards sin, we might crucify sin in one minute only to long for its release in the next. And Paul calls you, Paul calls me, he says, don't do it. Right, so we come over here, I'm crucified with Christ. Thank you, God. And Paul says, man, the natural implications of taking up your cross and following Christ daily is that you will step into the fray and crucify the flesh daily. That's the natural implication of following a crucified Savior. You are going to do to sin what was done to him. So what we do is take, we'll just take the first category, sexual morality, lust, sexual sins that keep trying to pull us away from Christ. He says, take that baby. I mean, you're just pounding it in. I'm crucifying this thing. By the power of the Spirit. We start to walk away, but the flesh isn't, right? It's not quite dead. It's, just, it's over there whispering, hey, why don't you just come back and take me down? I won't be as ruthless next time. Hey, I know we watched that, that, por- that, that porno movie, but that was a little too much. Maybe we'll just go after some softcore stuff next time. And then we start going, yeah, maybe that's good. So what we do is we come back, we're like over here trying to wrench the nails out of the hand. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Hey, medic, right? We're over here, we're trying to coddle it back. We're trying to pull the nails out. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Crucifixion is a ruthless, pitiless act where you pin something to that cross so that it dies. And you don't coddle the cadaver. You don't try to resuscitate it. That thing's dead. And you want it to die. And by the power of the Spirit, you can actually see this take place in your life. You can see it take place in your life. So don't make any attempts to try to take the flesh down again from the cross learn by the Spirit to leave the crucified flesh in the one place it deserves to be, pinned to the cross to die. That's where the flesh deserves to be. Not in your life, 
you fanning it into flame, trying to coddle it back into life, it deserves to be pinned to that thing so it can die. Don't caress the cadaver of your flesh. By the Spirit's leading, declare war on the flesh. By the Spirit's power, put the flesh to death. By the Spirit's power, live out your Christ-bought freedom as you walk in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, so that the flesh is truly conquered. Let's pray. Father, help us in these things. Same verse as last time where it's easy to say, difficult to do if we seek to approach this in our own strength. But Jesus, you're not calling us to obey your command in our own strength. With St. Augustine, we say, give what you command. Give us, Father, help us to walk in leading submission to your work of holiness in our lives. We love you, Lord Jesus, and are thankful for the way you move in and among us and that your desire is to conform us to Christ. Father, now as we turn to a time of response, please help us to hear you clearly. I pray against the schemes of the enemy who want to come and snatch these gospel seeds so that we will begin to think upon frivolous things that bear no eternal weight. Father, by your power, I'm asking you to stay the seed-snatching schemes of the enemy and that you would truly cause us to now respond in prayer, respond in thinking, respond in action to your great work in us and through us by the power of the Spirit. It's in your name I pray. Amen.